Hey guys, before we get started in today's episode, I just want to announce that we partnered with GunpowderTees.com to produce an official Millsurp World t-shirt. So if you want to support the channel and you want to get an awesome t-shirt that has our logo on the front and it has the old school Mauser logo on the back, head over to GunpowderTees.com. Check it out. It is the YouTuber special Millsurp World shirt. It's available in multiple sizes and we selected two really cool colors. So if you want to support the show and have an awesome shirt, go over there and check them out. Uh, if you use the promo code Millsurp World, you will get 10% off of anything that you buy on their website. The t-shirts are high quality and there's free shipping on all orders. So go ahead and check it out. Hello everyone. Welcome to the Millsurp World podcast. I am Danny and we are here today with Aaron. And in today's podcast, we are going to be answering the questions that we got from our patrons on Patreon. That's just our, our, the, the people that have signed up to generously support our podcast, um, you know, ask for questions. We'll probably do this about every month. Um, so if you want to get your question answered on air, uh, just go to patreon.com slash and sign up and uh, we'll, uh, we'll answer, answer any question that's asked on there. Before we start the questions, though, Danny, I'd like to just uh, have a little bit of conversation. Uh, do you have any new purchases that you've gotten? Oh, yes. I bought, uh, bought quite a few guns recently, um, kind of accidentally. Let's see. I got a uh, Gewehr 9840, which is a pretty, pretty cool gun. It's based on the Hungarian 35M that I've done a video on before. Um, I got a German-made... Uh, Chinese contract rifle and uh, Danish crack. Oh, that sounds cool. Yeah, w w the Chinese one. Yeah, I mean both of them, but I mean the the second one for sure. Yeah, yeah, it's funny because those those for some reason the Chinese Mausers they go for so cheap. But I've always wanted a uh, a German made uh, Chinese Mauser because they uh, they put the the Mauser banner logo on the receiver. It's like one of the few K98Ks that have an actual Mauser like logo on it instead of a code. Uh, and then it has the cool... Right, but I mean, they're so cheap because most of them are really beaten. Yes, yeah. Like, it's, it's a couple different reasons. They're really rough, usually. Like, mine's pretty rough. It's not, like, rough compared to other Chinese Mausers, but it's, um, it's definitely more rough like, than, the, than the average military surplus rifle. Uh, but also, like, a lot of people don't know or care about, like, Chinese history. So they just, you know, they're, they're yeah, kind of like an a, under... wasn't really a great time period in the uh, late 19th, 20th century. Yes, yeah. Um, which, like, I've been kind of getting into Chinese history recently, and so like, I think it's pretty fascinating. And uh, so this this particular rifle... Um, it has the stamps of the nationalists on it. So the Germans put the little, um, uh, I forgot what it's called, but it almost looks like a mum, like a Japanese mum, but it's definitely not. Um, but it's got those markings on it instead of the Waffenamps. And, uh, but then on the right side of the buttstock, it has burned into the wood some, some uh, Chinese calligraphy. And it means uh, that it is the militia of Hunan, or Hunan, or I'm probably mispronouncing that. So it was in the communist uh, militia after, um, after the rifle was captured. So the rifle was sold to the nationalists um, in like the late 1930s. 
and then it was given to the you know soldier the Chinese uh, fought probably the Japanese and then at some point it might have also fought the Chinese communists and then it was eventually captured and then used by the Chinese communists um, and then after all of that it somehow made its way back here but it's just kind of a kind of a neat gun lots of history for sure yeah, and I think it's fascinating that the Germans armed the Chinese to fight the Japanese. Yeah, there's a lot of nuance and a lot of this stuff that gets overlooked a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, Anything else the, new? The, roll, the, uh, the, the rolling block, and I'm kind of going back now a couple months, but I think that's about it for recent. Um, most happy about my, uh, Gewehr, uh, my G43, the Gewehr 43 I'm restoring. Just oh, yeah, these. you got a new stock for that. Yeah, yeah, ordered a stock from uh, Fox Military. Uh, I, I didn't get any sort of discount or anything for mentioning them. I paid full freaking price for that stock. Uh, they are expensive, but the, it is a beautiful, beautiful stock. I, I, I heard that sometimes there's trouble, like, you know, just dropping our, you know, the, your, your barreled action into, into this reproduction stock. You know, you might have some fitting issues, but, I mean, it was perfect. It was like a glove, man. It was... I was real excited, so yeah, you definitely got, get what you pay for with their with their products. Yeah, yeah, and it's crazy. So it's laminated wood. I guess the the main reason why it's so expensive is because laminated wood is really expensive. Like just plain hardwood is like a quarter of the price, but because it's, it's a lot less work intensive, labor intensive. Yeah, yeah, which is kind of interesting because they like kind of switched to laminated wood during the war. Uh, you know, the Germans did. They switched to it and one of the things that people say is because it's easier to get laminated wood or something like that, but no, it is more labor intensive. It's, it's easier to mass produce it, not to produce it on a small scale. Yeah. Well, I'm going to be making a, uh, a video on the YouTube channel about the stock and about the whole restoration and stuff. I'm still waiting on a bunch of parts. It's crazy. I've had to order parts from like three different countries, four different countries counting the U.S. so far just to, like, try to complete this thing, so, yeah. Well, it's so a labor just... of love that we discussed in previous uh, episodes. Yep, yeah, ju yeah, just like this, this porterized one, it's a labor of love, man. And, and it actually is going to work out monetarily with this gun. Like, I'm not going to lose money after all this. That's pretty cool. Well, um, actually, just today... I finished the purchase of a new Monlicker because you know how much I'm a fan of those. Oh, yeah, I know how much you love Manlickers. Well, you know I love those Manlickers. But <laughs> um, I purchased a new, well, not new, new to me, M9530. And this one is kind of unique in that it was accepted back into the Austrian service uh, in 1937 not Austro-Hungary, uh, that's regular Austrian, and most of those, at least I, I believe actually all of those, had gone to Bulgaria after Austria ceased to exist, um, and this one doesn't show any markings for Bulgaria, and it has a unit marking on the butt plate, which uh, I've not been able to verify what that means yet. And it's very odd, but I'm very excited to get it. So what you're saying is not all M9530s are the same. No. 
Well, the majority, and I'm talking like 90%, went to Bulgaria at some point in their life. But other than that, I don't have anything new. Let's uh, jump into the questions. This is from, uh, from Thomas Finnegan. And uh, let's see. He's got a couple questions for us. I'm going to start off with the first one. It goes, at what point did you decide to start selling some of your collection instead of just accumulating items each year? Was it uh, finding a focus to your collection, or was it to free up cash for better purchases more quickly than just saving gradually? You go first, Danny. I'll answer a second. Uh, well, I've, I've definitely had to sell some of my collection to be able to buy stuff. It kind of just depends on where I am monetarily. So, um, like, if finances are tight, then I'll kind of sell stuff to buy something. Um, that's kind of the deal I have with my wife, is that if I want a new gun, like, I have to sell a gun to get it. And uh, so that's, that's kind of usually what I do. Is every now and then I could pick up something new, you know, without having to sell anything. Um, like, a, an example... I had to sell, like what I was just talking about, the Hungarian 35M. I had to sell that to help pay for my uh, Swedish Jungmann rifle, uh, just because the Swedish Jungmann is a pretty, uh, it's like a high dollar rifle. So um, so I had to sell a couple of things, you know, in order to, to pay for it. So uh, it just, it just kind of depends, you know, you could, I don't think I've ever sold anything to focus on a specific collection because I think I've just kind of branched out too much. I used to be a little bit more focused, but now I'm, um, I've just, I've kind of, I think I started pattern collecting German rifles for a while. And then I kind of got bored with having eight rifles that are all exactly the same. So then I started branching out and I kind of started wanting to get like one rifle of each different, um, type of, of gun or like from each um, nat, like nation like a you know a French rifle and a German rifle and English rifle you know well for me the the issue has always been is that I have a very small safe it's a 14 gun safe so I'm limited in that regard as far as how much I can fit in there but the other thing that I had happened to me was that I realized I had probably 15 or, well not 15, 5 or 6 guns that I never used, I never took out to the range for whatever reason. Uh, some of the times it was just because I didn't enjoy shooting them, other times it was I didn't have ammo and I just didn't want to reload for it. So I started selling those guns off and buying stuff that interested me more. I had started collecting with the idea that I was just going to buy and keep everything I ever bought, but I think that for most people, like Danny mentioned, is that you you kind of start to fall into a pattern of what you like and what you don't like, and I, I've noticed that um, because my first rifle was a Chilean 1895 Mauser, that I don't like curved bolts, and... Uh, Danny's first rifle was a K98K. He likes curved bolts, so it's 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 to me a curved bolt isn't something I'm probably going to go for. I mean, it's not going to stop me from buying a K98K if I found one for a, a good price, but it's not something I'm going to go out of my way to find. And uh, for me, 
it wasn't so much as finding a focus as it was realizing that it's okay to sell stuff if you don't have an interest in it. Like find somebody that has it's going to appreciate it more than what you are doing with it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, now that you kind of mention it, I, I have sold a gun in the past before that was kind of like what you said about um, like not shooting it, like if it just sort of sits. Um, uh, I had a, uh, a Type 99 uh, that that I just, you know, of course, because it's 7.7 and you, the ammo, you can't really get the ammo anywhere. Uh, and it's expensive if you do find it. I never shot it, so I just, yeah, I ended up selling it just because it, I'd rather, at the time, I would have rather bought a gun that I could actually shoot. Um, back, you know, when I started getting into collecting, you know, over 10 years ago, I didn't, I didn't have as much, you know, uh, gun money. So I had like a rotating collection of like four or five guns. And, you know, if I wanted a new gun, I had to sell one of the four or five guns that I had. So, um, so, so I sold the Type 99, um, which I do kind of regret now because it was it was a kind of a good one. Like it's hard to find one like that now. Um, it had the mum, and it had the AA sights and the monopod and the cleaning rod, and it was in pretty good shape. Yeah, I don't have any regrets yet, thankfully. Not everything I've sold, I, I, I don't regret selling at this point. Well, that's good. Yeah, no, no regrets, man. But uh, the the 35M, I kind of regret selling a little bit less now that I have. Well, maybe more at the same time, now that I have the 9840. So it would be cool to have both. Yeah. yeah, it would be neat to have both examples. Yeah. It's like I'm getting that 1893 Mauser, the Spanish 1893. And I was going to sell the U.S. Crag to kind of help pay for it. But I can't sell the U.S. Crag because that was the other side of the war. So I'm like, ah, like I can't. <laughs> okay. Uh, so this is again from Thomas. Uh, would buying a Siamese Mauser be worth it for those who don't reload? Uh, recently, gun broker sales ranged from just $207 up to around $300 for the rifle. Uh, Buffalo Arms currently has 8x52R Siamese Mauser ammo around $50 per box of 20. That is a great question for you. Yes. Um, uh... This is going to sound a little uh, counterintuitive for me, but I wouldn't necessarily recommend buying a Siamese Mauser if your intention was to make a shooter out of it. It's an a fascinating piece of history. They're extremely well built. They're strong. They're there's no like complaints about the build quality. The the, the the maintenance the Siamese and eventually the Thai government kept very good care of them um, your issues are going to be it's it's really and Danny can attest to this it's it's just a Mauser if you've fired any 8mm Mauser it's not going to feel any different and the amount of expense it's going to take and time it's going to take to make the ammunition if you're going to reload it or the expense if you're going to buy it is, in my opinion, not worth it to make it a shooter. Now, if it was something you wanted to purchase as a collectible and then maybe buy a box of ammunition and shoot it every once in a while, you know, buy a box here and there, 
Yeah, I would recommend it completely, especially because of the history and the build quality and everything like that. And because, like he said, they're very cheap. I mean, three, what do you say, three, three hundred something for the rifles? I mean, that's what I see them go for between three and three fifty most of the time. They're very cheap considering how good of a quality rifle they are. But the problem is going to be it's not going to be a shooter. Yeah, I would definitely agree that it's you don't get that as a shooter. You get it as a piece of history. Now, a lot of people don't shoot that much, really. A lot of people buy guns to be shooters and don't shoot that much just because we always think we're going to shoot more than we do. If money is not really a big issue to you and you can drop 50 to 100 bucks to have 20 or 40 rounds, you can take it to the range, you can you know, shoot it and, uh, you know, and enjoy it, um, then that's, that's, I guess if money is no issue, then, then yeah, you know, do it. You can, you can shoot it a few times a year and it's not going to be a big deal. Um, but yeah, like Aaron said, it is. I got to shoot Aaron Siamese, so that makes me like the third person in the United States to ever shoot a Siamese. But it's, um, yeah, it's just a Mauser. It's very, it's very Mauser. It's a straight bolt Mauser uh, in, you know, in an eight millimeter. So um, it, to me, it seemed, you know, handled and felt a lot like shooting a Gewehr 98. Um, so buy it if you don't mind spending a lot of money on the ammo and if you find that history fascinating so buy the history don't buy the shootability yeah i mean that's essentially it's going to come down to it because if you're going to reload the cost of the reloading components uh, aka thankfully the bullets are standard eight millimeter thank goodness but the uh, the cost of the brass you're going to have to buy from buffalo arms anyway unless you're going to make it yourself which i do not recommend because it is a gigantic pain in the ass, and um, you're going to have to buy it from them anyway. The dies are not cheap. Um, I don't think anybody makes non-custom 8x50R Siamese anymore. Uh, very briefly, um, RCBS made 8x52R Siamese, so you can still kind of find those sometimes, but they've discontinued that, so there's more difficult to find those. So really, you're going to have to have custom dies made, which you're going to be spending two, three, four hundred dollars for that. And if that's not something you want to do, then I would say just buy the loaded ammunition from Buffalo Arms. I've never heard anything bad about it. It's just expensive. Um, and be honest with you, from from making the ammunition myself, I know why it's expensive. It's a gigantic hassle to make it. So. Um, I mean, I mean, when it comes down to it, I, I think it's it's a great rifle. I love them. I have two. I'm not going to get rid of them anytime soon. But it's not my go-to-the-range-every-day kind of gun. It's almost a two-parter. But he says, thoughts on the Swiss Luger for 2019. I can make one more pistol purchase this year. Uh, New Jersey does not recognize CNR licenses, and it has a very lengthy process to acquire each new permit. Um, that really sucks. That sounds like Europe. Basically, you get one more pistol purchase for the year. Okay. Not trying to harp on yeah, state laws or whatever. Yeah, it's the butt, oof. it sounds like. Yeah, that, that really sucks, man. Um, okay, uh, Swiss Lugers um, are really cool. Uh, I think a lot of people, when they think of Lugers, they think of, like, Germany, and they want, like, a German Luger. Swiss Lugers are probably even better because they were they're 
Mm, I don't know. I was going to argue that maybe they're made to a higher quality, but even if they aren't made to a higher quality, they are. They were kept up better because they didn't go through two world wars. Um, so they're going to be in better shape. Uh, you know, they're a neutral country, so it doesn't have a lot of like war history. Um, but it's going to be, you know, mechanically solid, a very good shooter, very well made and well maintained. Um, you know, Swiss Lugers, they have a grip safety, uh, unlike normal German Lugers. Um, I guess the, the question is, you know, why, why do you want a Swiss one over a German one? Uh, me personally, uh, I'd, I'd rather get, because they're about the same money, I, I'd rather get a German one. Um, just because it has that extra that extra bit of history to it, um, but uh, but yeah, but if you I mean if you specifically want a Swiss one, like it's a it's a sweet gun, like you're not gonna not like it. So he says with prices the way they are, would you bite the bullet and set aside the roughly seventeen hundred dollars to purchase this now, or would you spread this out over multiple purchases? Uh, that same amount could buy a K11 carbine, uh, 1896 and top it off with a cheaper pistol, such as Webley Revolver, for example. That is a fantastic question, and I have literally asked myself the same exact thing so many times. Anytime I'm thinking about buying a gun that's around like 1500 bucks or something like that, I always ask myself that question because there is a huge opportunity cost when it comes to um, spending that much money on, on, a, on, a, single, on a single firearm. Um, and to me, it, I don't know, you want to, you want to chime in on this before I, before I answer? Well, I mean, I, I've had the same thought too. I mean, um, for me, the, the biggest issue is space. I don't have the ability to buy three guns. So buying one would be easier for me. What if space was no option though? If space was no option, I'd buy the three guns, to be honest. Um, the, the issue is that in this instance, a Luger is not something that I would be interested in anyway. But um, I would honestly rather have more variety than spend it all in one place. Saying that, though, I did spend quite a bit on my uh, Crag, my U.S. Crag, and that could have been used to purchase probably two guns by itself. And I don't regret it. Because I love that gun, so I don't. I mean, I'm kind of being a bit hypocritical here, I guess. But when you're getting over fifteen hundred dollars, that's a lot of money to to most people. And I mean, if it's something you really, really want, and it's something you've wanted for a long time, go for it. You know, and, and don't regret it. But I would also be prepared to like if you end up don't liking it, you might want to consider selling it too. You know. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, so I guess reading this question now, you know, he mentions he could also buy a, a K11 and a 96.11. So I'm guessing he's a Swiss fan, and that's why he wants the Swiss Luger. Probably he's got a Swiss gun collection, which I get. Yeah. I also have a Swiss rifle collection, and they are amazing. And the more I think of it, so me personally, I'm more of a, I'm more of a rifle collector than a pistol collector. Um, I get I get much more satisfaction out of shooting a rifle than shooting a pistol, and I, I, I uh, so I think my decision is if uh, if it was me I would buy the uh, the Swiss rifles 
I would put the money towards having like a complete Swiss rifle lineage. Uh, it also sounds like it's less of a hassle for you with the with the New York or New Jersey laws. So, um, I would, yeah, I would I would put it towards the rifles, you know, and have multiple guns because it's it's kind of one of those things. Like for the same amount of money, you can play with three different guns, you know, versus the one. And then, um, yeah, that's what I would do. That's what I would do, and that's kind of what I've done um, quite a few times. In the past, yeah, so. for the majority of my collection, that's what I have as well. Yeah, it's really hard. It's kind of, it's one of those things, man, where like some of these rifles, if you're gonna like, or pistols like the the Swiss Luger, like if you're gonna, if you're gonna pony up that much cash, like that's a lot. Of, there's there's a lot of opportunity cost with that with other guns. So, yeah, yeah. Okay, you want to go on to the next. Yeah, I'll do the next person, and that is uh, Jacob Sharp, and he had two questions. The first is, what do you look for when purchasing a new Milserp? Do you generally stick to a theme, Mausers, Caliber, etc., or rather do you go for what is immediately available at a certain price point, or is mechanically interesting, etc.? And I can tell you right off the bat for me that I like the weird shit. And, uh, that's to put it mildly. And, but I'm not opposed to buying something. And we've said this before, if it's at a good price and I've bought, well, I've bought, I've bought, you know, I have an 1891 uh, Argentine Mauser. I have an 1895 Chilean. I have a 1909 Peruvian. I don't consider myself a South American Mauser collector, but I have three different Mausers from three different countries because they were good prices. What about yeah. you, Danny? Yeah, uh, I'm a mixture of both. I, I know what I like. So if I, like, say if I go to a show and I'm looking for guns, I usually just look for, like, a gun that I just want or a gun that's a good price. So, like, that last gun show when I found that Remington rolling block, it's like I... I do kind of want, I kind of wanted one anyway, but really at that price, even if I didn't want it, I would have bought it. Um, so it's, it's kind of, if it's a great price, I'll probably buy whatever it is if it's, if it's a good price. Um, but I'll buy something even if it's not a fantastic price, if it's something that I really want. So if it's like a, a German Mauser and it's like a decent price or maybe just a like fair market price or whatever, I'll probably buy it if it's, you know, if it's okay. Yeah, it's like, a little you, bit of both. It's, yeah, I, I mean, I agree. I mean, I like the the Mon Liquor stuff more than anything else, I suppose. But to be honest, I have more Mausers than I do of Mon Liquors, so it's kind of a weird situation in that regard. But it's really just a matter of availability. Is Is this available right now? Can I afford it? Is it a good price? Do I find it interesting? Uh, yeah, then I buy it. It's really all I really look for. Yeah, and it has to be like what you sort of just come across, you know, locally. Yeah, because yeah, like you, I don't. I mean, I, I don't know. I just want to when you when you when you stick to a theme, quote unquote, you're you're going to shoehorn yourself in, and you're going to miss out on deals that you could have gotten something else because you're like, well, that's not in my theme. Yeah. That, that is true. You will do that. Um, 
but at the same time, if you truly don't give, like, you know, if you truly don't care about a certain rifle, then, you know, maybe you shouldn't buy it. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, just like you noticed with your, when you were buying the, the same pattern K98Ks, it was like, I don't really like want to do this anymore and you just so you stop doing it yeah yeah so instead of putting more money into more k98ks i kind of branched into to other rifles and but yeah pretty much my rule is if it's too good of a price like i have a saying that i tell my wife and i go i go babe it's i'm losing money not buying this yeah so then, that doesn't you know, make a whole lot of sense to people my wife either i'm <laughs> We're losing money not buying this. I have to buy this. And then she'll kind of roll her eyes and be like, oh, okay. All right. So his second question is, what kind of maintenance cycles do you follow, if any, for your collection? Do you do an initial deep clean check under the wood and then leave it? Or do you do a semi-regular go through each rifle and re-oil and clean? In essence, what is your method for longer term storage and preservation? This is a really good question. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yes. we might have differing opinions on some of this stuff, but we'll we're not going to fight each other on this. But for me, whenever I get a rifle, and I think most people should do this as well, is I take it apart and do an inspection and just like I mean, I'm not a gunsmith, but I mean, you can see oh, there's cracks in the stock or there's pitting under the wood lines, so you can you can just check and see where any issues that would have been hidden are located and then potentially get those starting to be fixed but as far as like a deep clean i really don't usually do it unless it's like a cosmoline issue um and then obviously you would want to get that out of there but um i don't take them out to do a regular cleaning or semi-regular but i do clean them like wood and all um every time I take them out to the range and fire them. And um, that's about my only like method of preservation, really. Hmm. I never, uh, except for maybe when I first buy a gun, I never clean the wood. I never really touch it. Like if I buy a gun and the, the wood is particularly nasty, you know, I'll clean it, but that's the only time I'll ever do it. Uh, by cleaning, I mean like a rim oil wipe on it. And then like I um, have... Uh, this this waxing compound I can't remember the name of it right now but like uh, the British I think it's called Renaissance wax actually now that I think about it and the the British museums use it on um, their their stuff for like preservation and it uh, dries uh, clear and it doesn't leave a film so it doesn't look like anything's on it but it it has a nice protective layer on it Huh. I've heard about that stuff before. I heard people use it just on like the metal too, not just the wood. Oh yeah, it doesn't leave any kind of noticeable film. It doesn't leave any kind of residue. You cannot tell it's there once it's dried in. It's it's just there. Hmm. That's cool. I have no experience with that, but that sounds that sounds pretty cool. Oh, it's um, expensive though. For a little tiny jar, it's like twenty bucks. Oh geez, okay, maybe not then. I have too many guns for that. Well, I mean, you don't have um, to use a lot either, though. I mean, we're, I mean, I've I've used it for mine for like three or four years now, and it still has about half a jar left. We're not talking like turtle wax where you're pouring it on the car. <laughs> no. Um, yeah. So uh, my routine is pretty much whenever I buy a gun, 
I do a deep clean. I, uh, my wife knows I put it on the living room floor and while we're watching, you know, like TV, I'll just do like a detail strip of whatever it is and I, you know, scrub. I clean it the same way I cleaned uh, my uh, 1889 and my how to clean rust off old guns video. So I just use uh, a bronze brush, a bronze Otis brush and some uh, three in one oil. And I scrub all the, you know, any rust or grime or whatever off of the, all the metal surfaces and give it a good coat of oil. Uh, maybe wipe down this, you know, the stock if it needs it. Um, and that's just, that's what I do with all my guns as soon as I buy it. Um, now my, uh, the, the 9840 that I bought, when I took the wood off of it, I mean, it was just cosmoline, just thick, gunky grease, just all under the wood. And, uh, and I'm actually just leaving it. I thought about taking it off, but I was like, oh, it's, it's, it is preserving it. And it doesn't, I didn't know it was there until I took the wood off. So, so I was actually going to leave it. And um, that's one thing that I would actually recommend to some people that live in like humid environments um, is to put a, a light layer of grease on the uh, on the, all the metal components of the gun that's underneath the wood line. So take the stock off like a Mauser and you know and put grease on the barrel and stuff like that, like a thin layer of grease. Uh, that way it stays on and you know the the, the gun won't get any sort of pitting because. There's a lot of guns like that Chinese Mauser of mine. When I took the wood off of it, there's so much pitting under underneath the wood. So, um, if you live in a particularly humid environment, that that'd be a good idea. Um, so I do that initial deep clean. I throw it, you know, up on the wall or wherever, and uh, and then it's kind of bad. But sometimes I'll just I'll uh, I only clean guns like as needed. I don't have like a schedule or anything for for cleaning guns. So. I mean, the other day I was just, I, I looked at a gun and I saw some rust on it. So I was just like, oh, okay, I'll clean this tonight. So um, that's just kind of how it goes for me. When I buy it, it gets a real deep clean um, and then it goes wherever I put it. And then, yeah, if I see rust, I'll clean it. Let's see. Yeah, and that's, same here. So for we longer actually... term storage and preservation though, it's a little bit different. So it kind of depends. You want to say something? No, I don't really have long-term preservation stuff. I mean, I get my stuff out usually once or twice a year, and when I do, I clean it, so it's not really... I guess that's my long-term. Yeah, again. so now, if you really needed to store your gun for, like, for a long time, um, that's when you don't just use oil. That's when you break out the, uh, like, the lithium grease. And instead of oiling, you want to grease up that gun. And I mean, like like Russian Cosmoline style, like grease it up. That's the best way to, uh, to preserve the gun. So um, it just kind of depends on what you mean by, you know, like longer term storage. Um, you know, putting some grease on it, uh, that's, that's the best way to preserve it long term. If, it's, if you're going to check up on it routinely or whatever, then just oil is fine depending on your, depending on your environment. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, do you want to move on to the next questions? All right. Yeah, we got uh, we have Dan Lopez here. He says, um, uh, "What's your unicorn gun?" I recently found mine in a local pawn shop, a 1941 Johnson rifle. Oh, I am so jealous. I bet he, I bet he got a good deal on it. I mean, maybe, but that's that's fantastic. Mm, maybe. 
I mean, I've heard I've heard of a guy who found a Gewehr 91M at a pawn shop. They had no idea what it was, and he basically stole it. Um, I don't know if you know what a Gewehr 91M is, but it's they're like a $15,000 rifle because they're so crazy rare. And yeah. uh, and he found one, and I, I talked to him about it. I was like, hey, would you sell that or whatever? And he's like, no, I'll never sell this because I'll never be able to afford to buy another one in my life. So, uh, yeah. 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 So what's I mean, your... You uh, ran into... Oh, um, well, what's your unicorn, Danny? Um, I guess I kind of said it. My unicorn gun would be probably a G41M. Um, or I'd even oh, settle okay. with the G41W. Yeah. I, uh, I'm a... I'm a big fan of uh, German rifles, um, you know, German rifles of World War II in particular, and the uh, semi-automatic rifles, German rifles of World War II are particularly funky, um, especially that G41M, so, um, and it's super expensive, it's a gun that I'll probably never own because how, how expensive it is, so, yeah, that's my unicorn, so, what's yours, Aaron? It's actually a, a kind of a weird one which is not surprising given my, my taste for weird shit. Uh, I'd actually really love to own a, uh, a boy's anti-tank rifle. Oh, yeah. Yeah, if, if, if I could find a boy's in 55 caliber, not 50 caliber, which is a common conversion in the U.S. to make it not NFA... Uh, which is hilarious because the 55 caliber boys is actually less powerful than 50 BMG, but whatever. Uh, you do the DD paperwork and everything just to have it in the original 55? Heck yeah. Yeah. I, and I would pay the ridiculous ass loads it would take to, to make it a, a half caliber bigger round. <laughs> but uh, it, 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 it's just to me the the preservation of it in in the original caliber is the important thing for me. And then just to have something like that is, is just really neat. I mean, I got to see a, um, uh, what is that? I had a, uh, Lati. It's, uh, the Finnish, uh, anti-tank rifle, uh, one that's on the skis. And that was amazing. And I think that one's 20 millimeter. I think it is. Yeah, I think they are. Yeah. And that was just awesome to see up close. And then this was at um, a huge gun show I went to. And then right down the right down the row, there was a boys. And it was the first one I've ever seen in person. And I'd always wanted one. And seeing one in person just made me want to buy one even more. But I don't have six grand and the ability to do all that paperwork because I live in a state that doesn't allow you to have them anyway. Oh man, you you can't have NFA stuff. Uh, I don't know if if it's the fifty caliber and over is illegal, but everything else is. There's no um, sawed off. There's no or shortened, I should say. Uh, there's no silencers, suppressors, whatever you want to call them. Uh, Jeez, man. Yeah. So, uh, but and no automatics, obviously. Um, that was the big one, but I don't think it ever specifically called out the over 50 caliber one, which doesn't really come up super often probably. So they probably never really specifically called that out in law. Hmm. 
I mean, when you think about it, that doesn't really come up super often anyway. Lately, I mean, most of the time it's going to yeah. apply to I mean, like a like a canon, you know. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what a what a a, a dumb anti-gun lawmaker would think, but I mean, I'd probably I'd probably ban cannons if I was going to ban machine guns or whatever. But uh, yeah, that's another just another reason why you got to leave that state, man. Hmm. Yeah. Multiple reasons. All right. Eddie, part you want two. to move to his next question? Yep. Part two. How do you find mill serps? Pawn shops, auctions, local gun shops, etc. Uh, do you prefer to inspect a gun in person, or will you order stuff online? Um, I <laughs> so. Um, I do pawn shops sometimes, not very, very rarely. I've never done an auction. I bet you'll you'll have something to say about that. Uh, local gun shops, though, yes, I I hit up local gun shops um, as often as I can because you know they always have you know new stock um, that they get in. So um, online too, um, there's still there there's still some options. For, for buying guns on some pretty popular social media websites that uh, that's that you know you can find good deals at so um, yeah what do you what, what do you think Aaron well I've done auctions before and auctions are hit and miss as usual you would expect uh, I will say as far as a tip as far as an auction goes uh, don't go in expecting to buy the one single gun go in expecting to purchase a couple of things that way if it's the one gun that you've been waiting all day for and then it suddenly is gone out of your reach you're going to get really pissed off you're not going to want to buy anything and so i, I would recommend going in with a mindset of like i'm going to get like three or four guns and then you maybe walk away with one um as far as buying online I have bought online. I bought in. Actually, I've never bought locally because there's very few mill serps in this area. Um, but oh, actually, no, I did. I bought my K31 locally. But anyway, that's the only one. Uh, most of my stuff has been bought online and delivered to me either through uh, large retailers or through, um, as Danny said, um, auction sites uh, or purchased from friends that have shipped it to me um friends obviously you trust their judgment and their pictures uh sites like a uh, gun broker or something like that just make sure that they have lots of pictures that they're responding if you want a specific picture um uh, some of the stuff i've bought from there was because it was a really good price and I knew it was mislabeled or something like that. But for the most part, I try to avoid like online purchases just because um, unless it's the specific gun that is being sold is pictured, a lot of times what they'll do if they have, let's say they have like a bunch of M9130 Mosins They'll give you an example of one, but they won't give you yours. I don't recommend buying like that because you're not going to know what you're going to get. And it could be missing parts. It could be broken. You don't know. And if you're 
buying from a site that only takes pictures of the gun they listed, that's a little bit different. That's 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 better in my opinion and, and better way to go. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, he didn't mention, but I, I get a lot of guns from gun shows. Oh, yeah, that's true. I forgot about gun shows, definitely. Oh, and I'd also recommend uh, a Curio and Relic license if you're a, a Millsert collector, uh, if you don't already have an FFL, uh, because getting stuff delivered to your door is very handy. Um, do you prefer to inspect it in person? Um... Well, I would always prefer to inspect a gun in person if you can. Yeah, um, it, yeah. If you're buying it in person, then yeah, you just you know you look at it. Um. And if any place tells you that they can't, that you cannot inspect it, back away. I mean, unless it's some insanely good deal or something insanely rare, back away. To me, anybody that's like, no, you can't look at this, is there's something wrong. Yeah. If you go to a show or something and they have like don't touch, you know, obviously if you're very interested, they'll let you they'll let you touch it and look at it. But if you're actively negotiating, yeah, and a person's like, no, you can't expect it, just buy it, then yeah, then something's up. Um, but if I'm buying buying it online, I would ask for pictures. Um, and I know it's probably going to sound like annoying, but to the like to the person you're asking but just ask for a ton of pictures close-ups and good lighting because some people you know they'll they, you know the the pictures will be blurry and out of focus and too far away and poor lighting so i mean uh, a firearm is a pretty is a pretty big purchase like if you're gonna spend like a few hundred dollars on anything else you would expect it to have like good pictures and good lighting so um, yeah, you just kind of have to demand, you know, good pictures, whatever you're looking at. And, and I usually do. Um, and the times that I didn't, I regretted it. So, uh, so yeah, always, always, always be annoying, you know, just make your, like, don't ask for pictures like that. If you're really not interested, like don't bother somebody for no reason, but yeah, I, I get stuff online, but I don't get it from a lot of these like retailers, like classic or whatever. Um, if AIM has a good sale, I'd buy something from AIM, but I try not to get anything from Classic anymore. All right, our next question comes from David Key. Uh, he says, what's your opinions on the, I'm going to guess it's uh, Giha? Giha? Yeah. Giha 12 and 16 gauge Mauser conversions being unsafe to fire. Do you believe this stems from the front locking lugs being smaller than the bolt face, leaving only the rear locking lug? Or people shooting two and three quarter inch shells and firearms chambered for two and nine sixteenth inches. I have my own answer, reasoning, belief, but I was just curious about yours. Um, and I can tell you that I know nothing about shotguns, uh, but I would like to say that uh, Danny and I are neither one of us are gunsmiths, so I would, uh, with any Milserp, recommend taking it to a gunsmith just to have it looked over before you fire it, especially if it has a reputation of being unsafe. Uh, that reputation is there for a reason. I know you did mention that potentially people are using the wrong uh, size shells in their firearms, which could result in being issues, but um, like you also said, there's a potential that it's just not safe to fire anyway. 
So I would always recommend taking your rifle or whatever to a competent gunsmith, the one that you trust. I know it's more difficult to find nowadays, but Danny and I are not gunsmiths and we can't diagnose a symptom like this across the internet, but uh, we do appreciate your question. Danny, do you have anything to add? Yeah, um, I would say if you were going to get one, probably the smaller uh, smaller the shell that it shoots, the better. So probably the 16 gauge instead of the 12 gauge. Um, so if it's, I don't know if it's, if it's, you know, true or whatever about the front locking lugs not engaging and if it doesn't engage only on the 12, but it doesn't 16. Um, but uh, yeah, if it's only the rear locking lug, that's the actual locking lug surface. Um, I don't, I don't think the rear locking lug on the Mauser and ND8 system was ever really meant to be like a like a load bearing lug. So if that's absorbing all the pressure, then to me that doesn't sound super safe. Um, I've seen these. I've seen the you know the the Giha, Giha, Gahas. I've seen the Gahas and and you know gun shows and stuff, and I always thought they were kind of crazy and kind of a shame that they were done. Um, but yeah, uh, I guess the bigger question is, um, like, why? Why would, why would you want, if, like, if you have one already, then you know, I could see you wanting, you know, wanting to know if it's safe. But uh, why would you want one of those to begin with? Um, I would, uh, I, I mean, I would suggest getting, because there are some pretty cool historical shotguns out there, and I'd probably recommend getting, a, uh, like, a purpose-made shotgun than, like, a, you know, a Mauser converted to one. Um, Ooh, if you like if you like milserps that were converted to shotguns, the uh, the Indian uh, SMLE that's in 410, uh, I would recommend getting one of those because those are safe. Yes, they do not shoot a standard 410, but they can be modified to do so. Yeah, and I've seen the um, the actual 410 shotgun shells that. That's made to that's meant to be used in, in those uh, Indian SMLEs, uh, so they are available, available-ish. Um, so I would recommend getting one of those over this Giha. Yes, I think this might be the first and only time Danny and I recommend an SMLE. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Over a Mauser. Yeah. Jeez. All right, Danny, okay. uh, we're going to get to our final set of questions. Yep, yep. So this is from uh, Ryan Gar. He said, my girlfriend and I are traveling to Utah this summer. We are coming from the north and looping around the southern part of the state to hit all the national parks. Can you recommend any good shops to look for milserps? Uh, yes. Yes, I can. Um, so there is one really good shop. Well, I say it's a really good shop. There's a good shop in, uh, if you're going through southern Utah and St. George, Utah, and oh gosh, this is bad because I don't remember any of the names. But I will tell you that with the exception of two or maybe three stores out of all the stores I went to in Utah, they all thought that they could not sell me rifles because I was a Florida resident. So that's how dumb most of them were. Okay, so there's like there's one gun store that I went into in St. George, Utah, and I forgot the name, but they were I think they're like the biggest uh, gun store in St. George, and they had a all matching, really good shape German 1871 rifle, an antique, like it's very very antique, 
and they refused to sell me an antique in the, st in the store because I was a Florida resident. So, uh, so that's, so you have to expect that. Like if you're, if you're not a Utah resident, you got to expect them, a lot of them to not know stuff. Like I remember just out of curiosity, I asked this one store if they would sell me, uh, it was a Mosin 9130. Like, hey, would you sell me that if I'm from Florida? And they were like, no. So I just walked out of the store, like whatever else they had, like it, it didn't matter. So um, I think that's going to be your biggest issue that you're going to run into. In Salt Lake City, if you're going to be swinging by Salt Lake City, there's a lot of really good gun stores. Um, unfortunately, the one that I went to a lot and I, and I filmed a lot of videos in, uh, Heritage Arms, I think that place is closed now, um, which is kind of sad. But there is a store like an hour south of Salt Lake. Um, is it an Orem or something like that? And that it's the, the store that's known because nothing fancy goes there all the time. Um, I highly recommend that store. I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of it. Um, but there's a store, just look, just Google like gun stores and it's, it's like 30 minutes to an hour south of Salt Lake City. And um, there's a lot of really good gun stores in, in Salt Lake City. Just finding the right ones that'll sell to you is, is, the, is the main thing. All right, I can't really answer that question because I've never been to Utah. Gosh, I loved, I loved Utah, man. I still miss it. When, when me and my wife were, you know, looking for like a place to, um, like to s sort of settle down and buy a home, I mean, you, we really thought about Utah, especially St. George. Man, that place will just spoil you. Just the, the beauty. It's just constant beauty everywhere. Um, I mean, you get you get like numb to like beautiful sights all, like every day. No, well, I feel that way about uh, Yellowstone. Whenever I was there, it's just like you. It's just like you get tired of being astounded by nature. Well, th this might sound snobbish or something, but I I went to Yellowstone um, when we were living in uh, in Utah, and I was pretty underwhelmed with Yellowstone because of everything that we had seen in Utah and Arizona, like within the last, um, within the last year. Like that's, it's amazing, man. Like I see, I see why, you know, people thought that that was, uh, that was Zion or whatever, because it is, it's really beautiful. Well, what was his next question? Uh, okay. Uh, what are your thoughts on low serial number 1903s? Um, so he's referring to, uh, 1903 is that if there's like Springfield, it's below 800,000, and I forgot what it is for the other ones. So I think that it's not a big deal. No, I, and every time I've ever been I've, uh, I've ever been linked to the different websites that have done investigations into this issue, um, the, everything always points back to the there was an an incident and multiple incidents, and actually of receivers blowing up and I believe uh, a serviceman was either injured severely or killed and they did an investigation into this and that's an official investigation which is public record and the investigation results was that the the ammunition was poorly produced and that it was overpressurizing the rifles and in and in the course of their testing, they also discovered that the heat treatment for the receivers was not properly done as well. 
and I remember reading something about like uh, they didn't have a way to measure the heat treatment properly, so the, the the guys that were doing it were just kind of guessing. They were just older guys that had done it a long time, and they were just like, oh, that's enough time. And uh, that obviously was not a good method. Um, but based on the results of the investigation, as long as the ammunition was to specification, it shouldn't be an issue. And that's why they decided not to issue a major recall. I mean, obviously, the logistical issues of it, and then also the national embarrassment of creating your first rifle and then having to recall it because it was garbage or it was dangerous. But uh, th that's why I don't think you see the Springfields as... They're not labeled as a dangerous rifle, like that Mauser uh, shotgun conversion we just talked about. It's not labeled as a dangerous rifle. So, obviously, it wasn't as big of an issue. It was a two combinations. It was poor ammunition that way, way overpressurized the rifle, and then a poor heat treatment, which combined with the overpressurization, failed. Yeah. So, I think the, I think the consensus is pretty much that um, just because it's, you know, in that, you know, quote-unquote dangerous range, you know, of 1903s, just because it's in that range does not mean that it definitely is poorly heat treated because there is a chance that it's, you know, perfectly fine. Um, also, like, any of the guns that were brittle were probably shot a lot and probably have blown up or were damaged and removed from service. So I think just, like, natural selection has sort of taken its course on the, on the you know, the weak 1903s, and those are probably all gone. You know what I mean? Because that's been 100 years that those guns have been around and been shot and everything. So, and as long as the ammo that you're shooting is not crazy high pressure, if it's just you know normal, uh, normal 30 at six, then I, you know, I think you'll be fine. I don't think it's a, a big deal at all. No, I don't think it is either. But like I said, we're not safety people. We're not gunsmiths. Always get something checked. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're, yeah, it's you know, safety first and all that stuff. So if you, if you, you know, if you want to know, I don't know what you would do about that. Would you send it to a place and they would heat treat it for you or something like no, that? No, you can't. Just... I, from, what I've, from what I've understood is that you can't reheat treat it. It's not something that's possible. So, but I would just check it for any potentials like cracks or something that stresses that would show that it would be going towards a failure. Yeah, but that, that'd be, that'd probably be expensive because I think that's an MPI test and those things are, it's expensive to do to steal. And, it's in in this instance if you're that concerned about it then i mean you are we are talking about a controlled explosion that's happening inches from your face ah uh, you'll so, be fine just wear safety glasses i always recommend safety glasses as well but you know it yeah is or an explosion. if or buy a low serial number 1903 because usually those are more collectible anyway because they're the earlier ones don't shoot it and then you can buy another 1903 that's you know, a high serial number gun, and then you could shoot it. Yeah, do whatever, like, float your boat. He said that, uh, this isn't a question, but he went on to say that um, he's looking forward to the conversion rifle episode and uh, history of Swedish Mausers episode. I think I teased that conversion rifle episode, like, back in September. <laughs> yeah. I have it written out, I just, we haven't done it yet. Yeah, this one was a little. This one took high priority. We haven't recorded a podcast in a while, and 
And I, uh, people submitted these questions like a month ago. So we had to, we had to, to do this one. I am at times hesitant to buy more Swedish Mausers instead of guns I think of as being more historically significant. I need to learn more. Yeah, that's good. There's, there's a lot of good books. Uh, Crown Jewels is a really good book about Swedish Mausers. Um, that's, that's the book that I'm basing most of my uh, research off of that I'm, gonna, that I'm doing for the... Now, I've, this is bad. I remember being in California last year doing research on my Swedish Mauser episode. And it's such a bitch that I still haven't, I haven't, I never want to do it because I know it's just going to be like a whole day. It's just going to be a whole day yeah, trying to make this is. video. And like four people are going to watch it. Hey, but he'll be one of those four. Yeah. A movie gun gripe from Ryan. AR-15s are Tavors with no sights on them whatsoever. Yep. Yeah, well, uh, what was it? What's that zombie show that was on AMC? Walking Dead. There's a pretty funny image of the guy that had an AR-15 on there, and he's like holding it, and there's no rear sight. There's only the front sight, and he's like aiming it, and like just the angle that he's holding it at is like ridiculous. Um, yeah, <laughs> that yeah, The Walking Dead though, and then uh, what's what's? Uh, gosh, I haven't watched that show in so long. But the main character, the sheriff, like how he holds that revolver. He's always pointing that bitch at the ground. He's always like aiming at people's feet because it just hangs that long barrel. He just like like limperest it. I had enough rum that I'm like pretty loose, loosed up, loosened up with talking about this. That's stuff. that's staying in the podcast. Oh. <laughs> Dude, this is this is some really good dark rum. It's been aged twelve years, so it's like very tasty. It's going to stay in, and then uh, people are going to start sending you questions about rum. I hope so, man. I already finished one whole thing of it. I got this this rum, Kirk and Sweeney. It's really good. And I've been drinking this. I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's this Japanese plum whiskey. That's fantastic. After this episode, our very next episode, we'll have a, a very special guest, uh, Othias from... CN Arsenal will be joining oh, yeah. us, and we'll be doing some questions with him. And I know that quite a few of the friends of ours are excited to get on and ask him questions, and I'm sure he's excited to answer oh, them. Man, I'm stoked. Uh, even though I'm sure, even though I'm sure we'll come up with some weird ass questions to ask him. And uh, so tune in for that episode next after this one. If you'd like to get your question answered on the show, head on over to patreon.com slash millsurpworld and uh, sign up to support us. And uh, go ahead and submit your question at any time. We'll be doing these uh, about once a month, so just go ahead and send over your question, and we will get to it as soon as possible. Uh, yeah, thank you all for uh, donating to the podcast, keeping it available um, continuously. Otherwise, it would be deleted at the end of 90 days. And... Uh, just say that we do also have a Facebook page, Millsurf World Facebook, and we also have a, a email address, which is uh, millsurfworld at gmail.com. If you want to email us anything, uh, we'll get to you uh, as we get the emails. But uh, other than that, I just have a good rest of your day. Yeah, thanks for listening, guys.